A quick note of thanks to listener Frank Martinez, who used the link in the show's notes to buy me a few virtual cups of coffee, which helps offset the cost of putting this podcast together each week. Thanks, Frank. And now. They seem like a suburban couple living a normal life, but in reality, they were responsible for a string of car thefts and bank robberies in the Chicago area that left two people dead. Today, we're discussing the bearded bandit. Jeffrey Erickson, and his wife, Jill Erickson. I'm Tommy Henry, and this is the Chicago History Podcast. Before we get started, this episode deals with violence, threats of violence, suicide, and other topics that are pretty dark. This episode is not recommended for young listeners or anyone sensitive to those topics. January 9th, 1990. First nationwide bank in Wilmette, a suburb on the North Shore, is held up by a robber wearing a fake beard. February 4th, 1990. The first Midwest bank in Mundelein is robbed of $40,000. On May 17, 1990, a white male in a Cubs baseball cap sporting a fake beard robbed the Tallman Home Federal Savings and Loan on Milwaukee Avenue in the north suburb of Libertyville. No threats were made, but the robber stated he had a police scanner. The robber made his getaway in a silver car that had been stolen three days earlier a car that was found later abandoned behind a furniture store. A few weeks after that incident, a maroon car was stolen from the Hawthorne Shopping Center in suburban Vernon Hills. That car was used by a bearded robber who entered the NBD Skokie Bank on Dempster on June 8th with a police scanner in his left hand. He demanded $30,000, telling the teller if he didn't get it, he would take the teller into the vault and kill them. The getaway car was discovered one block from the bank, its motor still running. A Cubs baseball cap was found in the car. Additional robberies occurred later that year, all involving a bearded white male with a radio in one hand and a gun in the other. One in September of 1990 at the Fairfield Savings and Loan on Lawrence and Norwich. One on November 15th at the First Colonial Bank in Wheeling, Illinois. At the Wheeling robbery, bank personnel activated the alarm immediately, but the robber was gone before police arrived. At each of those robberies, a car stolen a few days before was found abandoned nearby. Jeffrey Erickson grew up in the Chicago suburb of Morton Grove, Illinois, one of two boys born to Jack and June Erickson. The family had a love of camping, and by the time Jeff Erickson and his brother Jim were grown, they had camped in almost every state. During high school, Jeffrey Erickson was on the swim team at Niles West High School, but was an unremarkable student. Older brother Jim Erickson developed an interest in guns, and while the two brothers were still in their teens, they started going to shooting ranges. Graduating high school early, Jeffrey Erickson joined the Marine Corps, where he learned aircraft maintenance. While in the Marines, Erickson won trophies for marksmanship. Jim Erickson took his interest in weapons and developed it into a career, first going to gunsmithing school before opening his own gun shop on St. Charles Road in Villa Park. 
After serving four years in the Marines, Jeffrey Erickson received an honorable discharge. Later that year, Erickson met Jill Cohen, a 17-year-old high school senior celebrating her birthday with her older sister at a Niles bar. They hit it off over a mutual love of pets and a dislike of dancing, and within six months, Jill dropped out of Buffalo Grove High School and moved in with Jeff. In 1983, the two were married in a civil ceremony with only their parents in attendance. Jeffrey Erickson joined the Chicago Police Academy where his excellent marksmanship won him additional trophies. He was eventually brought on as a trainee at the Hoffman Estates Police Department from 1986 to 1987. Although his bosses described him as, quote, pleasant with the public, end quote, he was let go because he, quote, lacked common sense, end quote, and was inept at doing everyday police activities like paperwork. While he couldn't cut it as a cop, Erickson was said to have a nearly encyclopedic knowledge of police procedures. In the spring of 1991, roughly a year after the first of the bearded bandit robberies, Jeff and Jill Erickson put $22,000 in cash down on a townhouse in the suburb of Hanover Park, about 34 miles northwest of downtown Chicago. A few months later, Jeff Erickson opened a successful used bookstore known for its extensive science fiction and romance novel selection on Irving Park Road in nearby Roselle, Illinois. On November 4, 1991, shortly after 11 a.m., Kevin Maher, a 24-year-old police officer in the northwest suburb of Palatine, pulled over a gold two-door Hyundai Excel. The driver stepped out of the car and opened fire on the officer with a Ruger Mini-14 rifle, hitting Maher in the shoulder before he even got out of the squad car. The officer threw his squad car into reverse, speeding backward and leaving a 100-foot-long tire track on Smith Street. According to witnesses, the gun-wielding driver calmly got back into his car and sped away. While helicopters hovered over the area near Euclid Avenue and Plum Grove Road, search dogs were brought in to track the shooter. 75 officers from neighboring suburbs and officers from the Cook County Sheriff's Department and the Illinois State Police joined the manhunt. All 19 of District 15's elementary schools went into lockdown to keep the nearly 11,000 students safe. Police conducted a door-to-door search of approximately 250 houses in the area without success. The gunman was able to elude capture, the police later surmised, by ditching the Hyundai and going through a wooded area to a cul-de-sac where he had another car waiting. The police officer hit in the shooting was treated and released later that day. There were two banks within a quarter mile of where the second car was likely placed, as the actions and switching of cars sounded a lot like those of the person responsible for the recent string of area bank robberies. The FBI was called in to consult. The shooting also prompted the creation of a task force made up of federal authorities and seven suburban police departments. The task force began tracking and staking out stolen Japanese cars in the hopes that the bearded bandit would eventually slip up. Two weeks after the incident in Palatine, a man wearing a fake beard entered the first Chicago bank branch on Higgins Road in Elk Grove Village. 
Unlike previous robberies, this time the bearded man had an accomplice, one described as 5 feet 10 inches with a slight build, also wearing a fake beard. Both had guns. While the second robber covered the employees from the front door, the main robber demanded $100,000 and threatened to kill a female teller. The two bank robbers escaped in a stolen car that was recovered a block away. Shortly before noon on Monday, December 16, 1991, the FBI was keeping a close watch on a stolen Mazda parked in a shopping center lot on Irving Park Road near Wise Road in Schaumburg. A rusty silver Ford Econoline van pulled up next to it. Jeffrey Erickson got out of the van and into the stolen Mazda. Before Erickson could hotwire the car to start it, FBI agents descended on the vehicle, apprehending Jeffrey Erickson without incident as Jill Erickson sped away in the van. For 11 miles driving at speed, sometimes reaching 110 miles per hour, Jill Erickson used three pistols to exchange gunfire with the authorities pursuing her. By the time she pulled down Bear Flag Drive, a dead-end street in a subdivision in Hanover Park, the van was on its rims as the tires had been shot out by the police. Jill Erickson continued firing out of the driver's side window as the van came to a stop when it crashed into a low cement wall. Police fired a few more shots at the van, and then... Silence. A voice over a bullhorn demanded the driver drop any weapons and exit the vehicle. There was no response. A lone officer approached the van behind a body shield. When the officer opened the door... Blood dripped out onto the street. Inside the van, 27-year-old Jill Erickson was slumped over the passenger seat, still wearing the dark wig she used as a disguise to cover her long blonde hair. Jeff Erickson, in the backseat of an FBI vehicle speeding downtown to the Dirksen Federal Building, heard most of what happened over the police scanner in the car. Paramedics raced Jill Erickson to Humana Hospital Hoffman Estates, where she was pronounced dead six hours later. An autopsy would later determine that the fatal shot that killed the woman Jeffrey Erickson, nicknamed Gorgeous, came not from the police, but from Jill Erickson's own gun. As Jeffrey Erickson was being booked at the Metropolitan Correctional Center in Chicago, officers informed him of his wife's death. A few days later, he was transported in handcuffs and leg shackles by a group of U.S. Marshals, to view her body privately at a North Shore funeral home. After Jill Erickson's death, details began to emerge about the couple's history and odd behavior, although they usually kept to themselves. When they did leave their beige two-story townhome, they made an impression. They would often leave for all-night motorcycle rides at midnight, in which they would race downstate to Peoria, Illinois, roughly two and a half hours away, and then race back before sunrise. One neighbor recalled seeing Jill skating for hours through the neighborhood on brand new inline skates, dressed in a snowmobile outfit with a full helmet. It was 5 degrees Fahrenheit out. It would later come out that Jill was manic-depressive and was showing early stages of schizophrenia. She had trouble sleeping and would obsessively exercise in order to wear herself out. When she did finally fall asleep, it could be for days and days. 
Prescribed lithium and later Prozac, Joe is prone to mood swings, antisocial behavior, alcoholism, and credit card spending sprees that put the couple in significant debt. She eventually sought professional help and was medicated to help regulate her sleep cycles and moods. A search of the Erickson home turned up 38 rifles, shotguns, revolvers and pistols, boxes of ammunition, knives, smoke grenades, and gas masks. There was a second police scanner, more disguises, and a $275 mail-order bulletproof vest. A ballistics test matched the bullet that hit the shoulder of Palatine police officer Kevin Maher, to one of the guns at the house. With a trial scheduled for July of 1992, Jeffrey Erickson planned to plead not guilty to robbing eight banks. He was suspected of robbing as many as 11 as far back as January of 1990. He confided to his lawyer that the real number was closer to 20. On July 13, 1992, outside the Dirksen Federal Building, Jeffrey Erickson's mother, June, pulled her son's attorney aside and said to him, quote, Please tell the marshals Jeff is talking unusual. I think he may try to make a run for it. He's looking around too much, end quote. Erickson's lawyer claims to have had a conference with the marshals where he shared June Erickson's fears. On the afternoon of July 20th, 1992, after the sixth day of his trial, Jeffrey Erickson and eight other inmates were being moved from the courthouse back to a nearby jail. What the rookie deputies, each with less than a year's training, transporting the men did not know, was that Erickson had a way to release himself from his cuffs. After quietly uncuffing himself, he grabbed the service revolver of one deputy who shouted to her partner, He's got my gun. Erickson brought the gun down hard against the head of the first deputy and without a word fired one shot into the forehead of Deputy U.S. Marshal Roy Bill Frakes. As he walked past the downed Frakes, he fired a second shot into the 30-year-old's back, killing him. Hearing the commotion, 58-year-old Harry Belwomini, a court security guard, came to investigate. Belwomini was a retired Chicago cop who spent 32 years on the force. Jeff Erickson, still in the suit he was wearing in court and no longer wearing handcuffs, tried to fool Belwomini into thinking he was a civilian, but Belwomini didn't fall for it. Erickson fired on Belwomini, striking him once in the chest. As he fell, Bellwomini fired four shots, with one hitting the fleeing Erickson in the back. Derek Thomas, a banker in the loop, was in the parking garage during the shootout and heard Erickson shout, I'm going to jail, I'm going to jail, I'm going to die anyway, I'm going to take everyone with me. Erickson tried to make his way up the exit ramp toward Jackson Street, but fell to his knee halfway up the ramp. Perhaps knowing there would be no escape for him, he chose to end his life with a bullet to his face. A handcuff key was later found near Erickson's body. All told, it was estimated Erickson stole roughly $180,000 from area banks, approximately $335,000 in today's money. 
In an odd twist to this already twisted story, James Alicia, the judge overseeing Erickson's trial, was leaving the parking garage with his two sons in the car with him moments before the gunfire erupted. He had even waved to Harry Belwamini as he turned onto the exit ramp. Alicia, also a former Chicago police officer, was later quoted as saying, There is no doubt in my mind Harry saved my life. Erickson would have either killed me or commandeered the car. In June of 1995, film crews were in suburban Schaumburg, Illinois, filming a John McNaughton-directed movie called The Normal Life. McNaughton, known for directing the rom-com Henry, Portrait of a Serial Killer, I'm joking, and Mad Dog and Glory with Bill Murray and Robert De Niro, grew up in Chicago's Roseland neighborhood on the far south side and had worked for Encyclopedia Britannica, Chicago Bridge and Iron, and Republic Steel and had studied still photography at Columbia College in Chicago. That is some Chicago cred. The story follows Chris and Pam Anderson, played by a post-Beverly Hills 90210 Luke Perry, and Ashley Judd as a couple that turns to robbing banks when their financial situation turns dire. Although producers try to downplay the similarities to the story of the Ericsons, it's pretty glaring. Filming locations also included Bartlett, Illinois, and Hanover Park, Illinois, the town in which the real-life robbers lived. The film was released to two theaters in October of 1996. Film critic Roger Ebert gave it three and a half stars, calling it, quote, fascinating in its portrait of criminal pathology, end quote. The film made just $22,891 before heading to home video. Jeffrey Erickson's older brother Jim Erickson later closed his gun shop in Villa Park and moved to Tennessee. As for the handcuff key Erickson used to free himself, that was eventually traced to a fellow inmate named Robert Burke, who was convicted of perjury in 2002 for lying about supplying the handcuff key to Erickson. Reportedly, Erickson promised to pay Burke $2,000 for the key, a payment which he never made. Burke was sentenced to 20 years in prison. In July of 2017, Deputy U.S. Marshal Roy Bill Frakes and Court Security Officer Harry Belwamini, the two men killed by Jeffrey Erickson at the Dirksen Courthouse on July 20th, 1992, were honored at a memorial service at that very same building at which they lost their lives. In attendance was Belwamini's widow, Millie, then 77. Tears welled in her eyes as bagpipes played in the lobby. She said... It's a happy and sad occasion at the same time. I'm thankful that everyone came out to remember. Millie Belwamini had stayed in touch with Bill Frake's widow, who had been unable to attend the memorial as she was with her mother, who was ill. U.S. District Judge Rebecca Palmeyer expressed gratitude for the men and women like Belwamini and Frakes who protect judges and all courthouse staff and allow the justice system to function. Palmeyer was quoted as saying, I know that for those of you who love these men, the loss and pain will always be with you. I see that in your faces today.
Thanks for listening to today's episode about the Bearded Bandit. As always, if you have questions about anything covered today, anything to add or have an idea for a future episode, I'd love to hear about it. Send me an email at chicagohistorypod at gmail.com. I'll have plenty of pictures and items documenting the events discussed in this episode on the Chicago History Podcast social media pages throughout the coming week. The original art for the Chicago History Podcast used on those social media pages was created by John K. Schneider. Thanks, Johnny. He can be found at AngelEyesArtJKS on Instagram or via email at AngelEyesArtJKS at gmail.com. If you have time, please rate and review the podcast. It really does make a difference. We'll be back soon with another chapter in Chicago's history. Until then, get out and explore when possible. Learn more about whatever city you live in and stay safe.